You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast, and tonight we're going back to 1944 to talk about Otto Priminger's noir classic, Laura. You, no trouble. Me, fifth element. You will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death, praying for war. But until that day, you are cute. Sound off like you got a pair. podcast i'm brian elkins with me tonight mr paul williams what's happening my man what's happening oh not too much just talking gangsters and and murderers here and cops and robbers yeah see fast talking and there's very high trousers this is our first film noir man it's kind of uh kind of exciting yes 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 it is our first film noir i guess Technically, is this really a film noir? I mean, really, is it? Yeah, I mean, I, I consider it a film noir. I mean, the American Film Institute considers it a film noir. It's on their, uh, what, 10 best yeah. noir, or 10 best mysteries, I guess, they con- is what they consider it. Yeah. I don't think it's actual film noir. So I, I, I guess I'm wrong there. But, I mean, you look it up, it's usually in the you know film noir section. I think when the DVD came out, it was part of a film noir series. Yeah. I think, I'm pretty sure. But, I mean, you're right. It's not photographed like a typical film noir. I mean, it's not real shadowy and, and dark and characters coming in and out and being masked by shadow. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah, that's typically what you, you know, what you associate with um, a noir film. But that's not the only thing that makes a noir a noir. A noir could be a noir because of its subject matter as well. Yeah, yeah. If you have, you know, they usually contain some kind of um, taboo lord subject matter uh, yeah, of some kind. I mean, I, well, granted, most, I guess, technical film noirs, if we're talking about film noirs, we are talking about movies that are made from the early 40s to the mid 50s, somewhere in that 10 year time period, or maybe 15 years. We're talking about those films. So yeah, I, would say, of- I would say like 1940 to 55. Yeah, I mean, yeah, somewhere somewhere in that ballpark. I think, I think Maltese Falcon, or the Maltese Falcon, is considered the first film noir, and that was 41, 1941. Yeah. So, I don't know. And, and again, like, I don't know if that is technically considered, but that's usually when you're reading, you know, something on film history, or you're going back and reading something about film noirs, that is the one that the, most people and most film critics point to as that being the first one. Yeah, that's the one that always pops up. I don't know if I agree with that, but... I, again, that's not, that's not something like, you know, I was 
studying or, or even researching, you know, even looking at this film. Kind of the noirs, though, after that, that time period are kind of like, I guess I would call them neo-noirs or what they're labeled as as neo-noirs. Like anything like Blade Runner, Chinatown, um, L.A. Confidential, any of those films, I, I would consider neo-noirs. Yeah. And they're usually usually in color. Yeah, they are. They're, they're, they're colored films. But they still have they still have that, you know, that shatteredness. You know, again, it, it kind of has dark subject matter. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Like if you if you watch Chinatown, uh, Ch- Chinatown, they play with shadow in their cinematography. You know, but it's also the subject matter. I don't want to spoil that movie for anyone that hasn't seen it, but it's kind of has a a taboo subject matter. It's not just a love story and a government cover up. There's something else there. I mean, I guess Shutter Island you could consider a neo noir. Yeah, I, I yeah, I guess you could because again, like you have like the detective coming into the the island. Although that, again, like that, that's missing a couple of elements. Like you don't really have the femme fatale. Which, no, you don't have the femme fatale. No. Which is usually like the uh, you know the busty blonde you know bombshell going to seduce the detective or uh, private eye to you know to make him do something uh, wrong. Um, like like the Jessica think, Rabbit. <laughs> Well, exactly. I guess that would be like the, the yes, the car- the cartoon version of that. But yeah, exactly. Or yeah. Um, Kathleen yeah. Turner in, in Body Heat. That's that, that that's a great yeah. neo noir. But even Marilyn Marilyn Monroe, she was in. I think she was in. Uh, what was it? Asphalt Jungle. Yeah, she was in Asphalt Jungle. I mean, I guess if you really wanted to consider, uh, do I do I dare say you know, Basic Instinct is being a neo noir? Ooh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess I would absolutely. I, I would consider that. Yeah. You know, because you have the the film fatale, and they they definitely yeah. have um, you know harsh shadows. I'm thinking about like the interrogation scene where you have the like, the blinds, um, the shadows from the yeah. blinds hitting the wall. I, I, yeah, exactly. I think I think you know, all of that would count. You know, and, and like f- film noir is kind of a, a genre. That it doesn't really exist anymore. It's kind of been soaked into and absorbed by every other film genre. Yeah, like horror it's kind films, of dramas. Lost. Yeah, I mean, just like where you and I were talking. You know, about how directors used to be able to just tell a story more with visuals in certain cases than dialogue. I feel like sometimes that nowadays in movies, that, that that's kind of been lost. Like You don't really see a filmmaker try to tell a story without words quite as much as you did back in, like, say, the 40s and, and the 50s. Oh, you know, you know what I really noticed watching Laura is like how we use so many more shots now to to tell a story or to tell just in a scene. Like you're in your mise yeah, scene, you know, and like yeah. in a modern day movie, you would have you go close up or just like, like even the first shot of Laura where you have the detective and he's just walking around the apartment. In this movie, it's all done in one shot. It's a dolly mm-hmm. shot and it's it's nice and everything. I, I think Martin Scorsese or maybe Spielberg would have shot something like that, but yeah. Other filmmakers feel like we would have had a shot of the detective, a close-up of everything he's looking at and everything he touches. And an over-the-shoulder shot when he picks up whatever he picks up in the damn cabinet. Yeah, and it's just like, that's so much more work, and it doesn't look as good. You built the set. Let's see the set. Like, let's go in, you know? I, again, that that's like the first shot of the movie, so it's, it's an introduction scene. But Another thing, to people who do not know, back in the day, there were no electric editing machines or digital editing machines. Literally, when you edited something, it was cut and taped back together. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it was a very time-consuming process. Oh, yeah, yeah. Giant, giant flatbeds. 
You'd have rolls of film. And even when this movie was done, I don't even know if, if they could hear the sound all the time when they were cutting. Because some of those, those uh, the little flat, the viewers, the film viewers on the flatbed, would sometimes they would just show you pictures. Yeah. You know, I mean, they yeah, had the bigger ones. Any audio. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I, that just sounds crazy to me. Because a lot of the audio, I mean, just like it's done today, still today, was done in post. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. I mean, you know, you always want to try to, you want to try to record good, you know, field audio as as best you can. But, I mean, that's the thing. Like, when you're outside shooting, think of, like, how many times airplanes pass over your head. And we have a microphone, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, yeah, boom mics and windscreens are awesome now. Technology's great, but you're still going to pick it up. So yep. it, nothing ruins a really, you know, <laughs> dramatic scene or, or like an emotional scene, like a plane or like a train or somebody's car horn or <laughs> some jackass in the background going, hey, did you order my pizza? It's like, oh, well, that just kind of kills the emotional moment here. <laughs> Or like I said, someone's dog barking. Yeah, I, yeah. This is there's things you just can't control. Um, you know, when you're shooting on location, which is, I mean, this movie though was mostly everything. Everything, yeah, was filmed on a set. I saw there they had a couple exterior shots um, here and there. There's there's the one with the car pulling up. I, you can tell that that's not on a back lot. Um, that was actually on location, but I think everything else is. Yeah, and then set. there's the one. There's the one where it's like the the little following sequence. Yeah, see, I didn't know if that was on. I didn't know if they shot that on New York or if that was a back lot, because you know it could have been a back lot. Yeah, they just go by the fronts of the buildings and they don't they don't spend you know very long. No, it's it's just a really quick shot, and that's another thing I will say about this movie. And I really really enjoy this about older films, especially because I feel that nowadays. You get, you get, man, it's just so much stuff thrown at you. Like, this movie is precise to the point, and there's really no filler in this film. Oh, no, dude. This is a very, very lean movie. And I really like that. And I feel like sometimes in, in modern cinema that you're thrown so many different things while watching a movie. And, and there's so much others, I mean, BS thrown in there that doesn't even really need to be in there. I mean, even some movies you have like freaking side stories. You yeah, know, it's like watching a damn TV show where you got story A and story B. Well, I mean, you have side and stories in like, this, but like again, it's like everything's gone. It's gone over so so. It goes over so quickly, and you don't have a billion main characters. You know, there's no. like there's three main characters, and then you have like pretty much just three like side characters. I'd say the housekeeper, Vincent Price, and the aunt. Outside yeah. of the three bigs, and then, I mean, really, that's it. Everybody else just kind of is there, or, I mean, barely even comes up again. Yeah, because, I mean, your your main characters are, you know, Laura, of course. Yes, played by the, the, the beautiful the, Jean Tierney. Uh, Detective Mark, um... Uh, Dana what Andrews. What was his last name? Yeah, de- oh, Detective de- de- Mark. Oh, uh, was it Mark uh, McPhears? McPherson. Yeah, McPhears. McPherson. Yeah, Detective Mark McPherson was played by Dana Andrews. You have Clifton Webb that played Walter Lidecker. <laughs> Lidecker. Man, he's the heart and soul yeah. of the movie, brother. Yeah, he really is. No no kidding. He really is. And, of course, I didn't. Even, if I hadn't have known this dude was in this movie prior to watching it, I would have not recognized him until I heard his voice. And that was the great, great macabre master himself, Vincent Price. Yeah, one of the few times you can see him on screen without a stash, bro. 
Yes, and it looks really weird. It does, doesn't it? It's like, whoa, you Without seeing that pencil mustache. You look so much younger. No, he does. He looks, like, way younger, dude. That mustache ages you in dog years. (laughs) You age in dog years because you have the mustache. I I like seeing um, Vincent Price in this... um, I, I like seeing him kind of have a, a comedy bit and a slime ball kind of role. Hey, you know, it, it's nice yeah, seeing him play does, against stereotype. Yeah, he, he comes across as this like kind of cowardice, kind of snake in the grass, slime ball dude that's just looking for himself a sugar mama. I mean, yeah. that's really that's really all he wants. He just he just wants him a sugar mama. Yeah, but he, he's also he's also got some good scenes like when he's courting the Lara character and in, uh, in the flashback in the film. I mean, you actually get to see like kind of Vincent Price as a romantic lead, and it's pretty fucking good. Yeah. But I will say to say, hate to say, man, Vincent Price is like straight up the last dude you would want to tell any of your secrets to in this movie because yeah. the cop, all he has to do is ask him twice. <laughs> it's like I can't, I can't lie to you more than once. And then uh, you had Anne Treadwell, who was uh, played by Judith Andrews. Uh, or was it Andrews or Anderson? It's Anderson. Judith yeah, Anderson. Judith Anderson. Uh, she's the, uh, I, I guess, really the only movie I really know her from is Rebecca, where she plays the evil uh, housekeeper. Yeah. That, ooh, man, those eyes and her stare in that movie. Um, being, that's also one of uh, Hitch. I think that's Hitchcock's only movie to ever win Best Picture at the Oscars, which is insane to think about. And speaking of this movie, this movie was uh, this movie won an Oscar. Oh yeah, it sure did. And, Best cinematography. And it was nominated. Yep, and it was nominated. It was nominated in two categories, I believe, but it only won in one. Oh, it was it was nominated in uh, quite a bunch. Uh, it got. Cinematography, which it won, and then it got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Clifton Webb. I mean, he should have won, man. He was so good in this movie. Yeah, he was really good in this movie. And then uh, Director, Screenplay. It was also up for uh, Art Direction as well. And I also say, man, I think one of the, another one of the characters, I thought she did a very, her acting was, was, was really good in this movie, was Dorothy Adams, who played Bessie. Oh my gosh, she is. She goes all over <laughs> in some of her scenes, man. She does, man. But I mean, her acting is like you know, her acting is believable in this movie. Yeah, she, and I mean, I, she, I think it. I think it works. It's it's from the fucking forties. Yes. So uh, that the housekeeper is treated like a slave in the movie. She's presented as being like just very emotional and and. <laughs> And overacts like over everything. Not that the actress is overacting, but her character like blows everything out of proportion. Like somebody yeah, says her, something her and she screams. And yeah, she's a very eccentric, eccentric person. Yeah, it's it's so over the top. But I, I mean, I, I I agree with you. The actress is doing a fine job. What she's doing is not bad. And you do have to realize when the movie was made. You know, this is at the height of the production code, so you can't show men and women sleeping in the same bed. You can't show anybody using the bathroom. I mean, there's just oh, bro, but you can so you can show people drinking the hell out of booze and smoking cigarettes like they're gonna be not available <laughs> on the shelf tomorrow. I, again, uh, the '40s. You know, it was it was a different time. <laughs> I don't and, know if and just, I hope the police detectives weren't the, drinking that bad though. Yeah, just I don't know, dude. Uh, I hope they were. Uh, Let's, I don't pray. Know. Let's hope. Uh, I don't know, McPherson man. He, he was he was knocking some scotch back in quick, this movie. Quick, give me some tall glasses but, uh, and uh, 
pour me that whole bottle of scotch yeah, in this glass. Dude, I, I love that line. He's like, so give me a setup and some highballers. <laughs> and then, like, the next scene later, he's like, well, I got to be back at work at the office at noon. <laughs> he's like, yeah. he's drinking the rest of the drink. And it's like, that was alcohol, buddy. I don't know if that was a, mm. he's like, yes, I, m- I must have half a, <laughs> half a bottle of scotch then, before showing up well, at work. Well, there's later on a scene in the movie where he literally drinks till he passes out. <laughs> oh, you know, and that's that's kind of like art imitating real life because Dana Andrews he ended up having uh, a really real big problem with alcohol. Um, yes, a, a real bad problem, and it almost like right it almost cost this. him. Yeah, and almost cost him his career too. Um, I, I, I was reading somewhere is, that he is, all got into some car accidents too, but I couldn't. Yeah, I didn't verify any of that or go check or read anything yeah. about it. Um, from, well, uh, I mean, whatever you were reading, dude, what I read pretty much said the same thing that he had, uh, um, gotten a few DUIs, gotten a few car accidents and eventually he sobered up and went on to become an advocate for drug and alcohol rehabilitation for people who are addicts. Yeah. And not only that, but he, he went on to become president of the Screen Actors Guild. Yeah, no, that is, that is kind of cool. I, I'm glad he turned so, around. Yeah, so that that tells you right there, like anybody suffering from you know alcohol or or drug dependency or addiction, that it's never too late to turn your life around. It's never too late to try to go and get help. You know, Dana and Andrews is living proof. I mean, it is. well, it I guess really he's not living proof anymore because he's dead. But well, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. mean he, I mean, it still is. It is. He died for unrelated good, reasons. Um, damn it! My point is still. <laughs> Yeah, it's still the whole metaphor behind it is good, you know. Like he was going down a dark, he was going down a dark path in his life, and he turned himself around and ended up doing good things. It's always something positive. Yeah, the only other movie I really remember him from um, standing out outside of Laura is Night of the Demon or Curse of the Demon, depending on if you're in the UK or the United States, which title you go by. Yes. Uh, from the fifties, both Brian and I, both Brian and I watched this movie. Oh man, and, it's a good uh, movie, man. It is a good movie. Drag me to hell, ripped it off. Drag me to hell did rip it off, right? Yes, and and what's really messed up is we've talked about Drag Me to Hell on this podcast. We did an episode on it, and nowhere in the research for doing that episode did this movie come up one time. Yeah, and dude, this is like uh, my, my uncle Rick. This is like one of his favorite movies, man. Ever. I don't. I know he's shown it to me at least twice. You know, before rewatching it here recently. And man, I completely forgot about this film. But yeah, you know, you're right. Rewatching it, it's like this is dragged me to hell all over again. That the train scene at the end is. That's when it kind of kind of all came back together. It's like, oh, I wonder yeah. if I wonder if Sam Raimi was doing a little bit of an homage there. Like, I don't know. Maybe I don't know if that's theft or not. Uh, if it's not, dude, it's, it's damn close. <laughs> yeah, it's damn close. Like we're getting it. We're almost getting into uh, Sergio Leone territory here. I get. I guess he changed enough things. He's like, well, look, see, he's not a yeah. professor. He is my main character is a chick, and she works in a bank. See, it's totally different. She's a banker. Oh yeah, and it's not some dude. You know, that's some kind of creepy ass cat. It's some creepy old gypsy lady. That's right. And we're gonna we're gonna yeah. take this uh, cursed piece of paper and trade it out for a button. You know, I mean, hey, it's totally different. Totally different. Yeah, totally different. There's, there's, <laughs> how can you even compare it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was that was surprising to see, and that that was really good. Um, the horror fans that listen to this podcast, uh, seek that movie out. 
Night of the Demon yes. or Curse of the Demon. It's worth it's worth the watch. Yes, it, it is. And and you, you guys can and, and make up in your mind yourselves on whether you think it, it's really, really ironically close to drag me to hell. Okay, we gotta talk about the main actress, Jean Tierney. Jean Tierney. Plays the titular character Laura herself. I don't wanna get all creepy here, guys, but she is absolutely beautiful. Yes. She yes. is drop dead gorgeous. She she was a very very pretty woman, and it wasn't her her acting career that was tragic. It was her personal life that was really tragic. Yeah, she had a she had a rough go in her personal life. Yes, I don't know why I'm laughing. Uh, I guess I have to laugh because if not, you, it it is so sad. Like oh man, you you feel so sorry. I feel so sorry for this woman. Like the only way you cannot be just completely completely depressed and just like god i, I want to cry for you is to kind of like uncomfortably laugh about it because well her first her first child was born and to use the 40s language uh what they said was she her baby was partially blind deaf retarded and she had all that going on all right and she found out the reason why is because she she came down with german measles while she was pregnant at a, what was it at a USO show or something? Well, yeah, yeah. Later on in, in life, yeah, it was it was at a USO shows where she got the measles from. But later on in life, she actually met a fan at an airport who said she was in quarantine at her army base and she snuck out because she wanted to see Gene Tierney so bad. I don't know. I guess she was just meeting the troops during World War II, and this lady with the German measles snuck out, got her sick, and like Gene Tierney's fame caused her babies birth defects you know and like can you imagine living with that like how would you not feel partially responsible for that yeah that's wow man that that would have to be really hard on a a mother and gene tierney was she was institutionalized and apparently given shock therapy oh yeah dude there's no that that is just no good like 19 times yeah, that's not cool. Like, shock therapy does not do very good for the human brain, especially... Well, she said she started losing going. her memories. You know, it's just yeah, like, she oh my God, that's crazy. Your brain cells. Oh, man. I mean, it's just, it's, it's nuts, everything that she went through. Um, but, you know, she did get her life kind of back on track. The last guy she married uh, was really good for her, and they stayed together for a while, and she kind of, she kind of stopped acting around the 60s um, and didn't really appearing that much so i guess she kind of found you know her peace in life later on she had her own happy ending i guess but still at the same time man that's that's a lot to bear you know that she had to feel completely guilty and like feel like the reason my children are like they are is because it's my fault i don't even i don't even know what to say about that that's just it would suck so bad like you're going to meet fans like this is i guess the reward you know for for all your hard work, yeah. gonna go meet. You're reaping your benefits. <laughs> You're gonna go meet all your fans. It's gonna be great. You worked your whole life, or you know, a giant majority of her life to be an actress. Here she is. She's famous. She got what she got. What she wants. And oh man, that is just heartbreaking. You know, just like somebody that's sick. They want to see you so bad because their performance means so much to you. Later on in life, I think she had some really heartbreaking quote. Or she wrote something like, you know, after that, I never cared if I was anybody's famous actress again. Yeah, it's like at that point in time, why would you care? I mean, it's kind of ruined your life at that point. But I mean, it's it's really kind of sad. But I mean, once again, with, you know, Dana Andrews, 
eventually it looks like some good did come out of it. She got she got her rainbow happy ending. You know, I mean, it was later in life, and yeah. I don't know if it was ever one hundred percent happy. I know she had some she had mental problems for the rest of her life, but at least she. Yeah, met well, somebody I mean, I guess getting a electroshock therapy nineteen times will do that to you. That's true. I, I did uh, watch uh, another film she was in. Uh, prepping for this podcast, man, I really, really enjoyed called Leave Her to Heaven. And she's the main actress in that. She plays this obsessive, just insanely jealous woman. Uh, it's great. It has a really disturbing scene on a lake. With a boat. Yeah. <laughs> it's right where the, this this writer marries this woman and they go back to his cottage at Back of the Moon. Oh, it is a really good scene. It's it's the year after. It's 1945. Really, really, really good. Cannot recommend seeing that movie enough. Um, if you've seen Laura, you like Laura, definitely see Leave Her to Heaven. It's really good. Not as not as fast paced as this movie. This this is a quick one. Yeah, like super fast paced. Like so fast paced. It's like you get meat and potatoes with this movie, and that's all you get. You don't you don't get a roll. You don't get a side of veggies. You get straight meat and potatoes. Yeah, I can see that. The the director Otto Preminger. I you know I think about his his films. I mostly think about his his later work like uh, Anatomy of a Murder or Advice and Consent. Yeah. I, I which think, is a great film. That is such a great film. Which one, Anatomy for Murder? Anatomy of Murder. Yeah. yeah, Anatomy is good. I I like that. But those films are, I man, the pacing on those, like, I feel their length a lot more. Like, Anatomy of a Murder, I don't know how long that is, but that movie feels well over two and a half hours. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I haven't, I haven't seen that in probably about two years, but, I mean, I feel the length of that film. Um, uh, same thing with Advise and Consent. I feel the pacing and I feel the runtime. This movie, I don't have that problem at all. And this is, like, the first of his films I've I've seen. Not only, like, like the first one chronologically, but also, like, in his body. I, I, I don't think I've seen anything before Laura. Anatomy of Murder and Laura are, like, his only two films that I've seen. I do know his uh, acting work from... <laughs> Again, like I, I know this guy mostly from his from the latter half of his career, like I guess fifties or sixties onward, where like he played Mister Freeze in the Batman TV show with Adam West. Uh, I think he yeah, was, the sixties, sixties yeah, Batman. I think he was the the second the second actor to play Mister Freeze. I think on that show, yeah, the second or the third, I can't remember. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you you know him. He's the the bald German guy, <laughs> bigger than life. You can't miss him. We didn't talk really that much about Clifton Webb. And man, I. Clifton Webb. <laughs> I know he's. Who was, who was a very notable stage actor. He did, God, lots of plays and musicals and, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah, and this is another one of. Um, another one of these actors. I think this is the only movie of his I've seen. I've never seen anything else that Clifton Webb did, which, I mean, his character in this movie, his character is so weird. Because he comes off as, like, being real feminine. All right, so Clifton Webb was uh, homosexual in real life, but I think the part, they definitely play up, like, the homosexual and gay angle in his role, and a little bit in the Vincent Price role, too. Yeah, I kind of got that a little bit, too. Preminger wanted to say something about, like, the masculinity of men somewhere in here, because the detective, like, is extremely macho and masculine. Like, just... No, he's like like Mr. Alpha Male. Yeah, I mean, like, he's literally, like, two packs of cigarettes away from Humphrey Bogart cool. Yeah. (laughs) But... But the the other two are very high salon. Two, pack, 
the cigarettes and a gill of scotch. Yeah, they're they're high society, and I guess I guess you see Vincent Price's character like courting other women and sleeping with other women is implied. It's never specifically come out and said that that's what he's doing. Well, I mean, but then once again, you have uh, McFierce goes around calling them dolls and dames. Yeah. <laughs> Don't call her a dame. Yeah, I mean, like I'm wondering, was that like? Was that like an insulting thing to call a female back then? Uh, call I her mean, a dame? Ah, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I wouldn't. I would assume a woman would like, like it. Mo- was that being like modern day? Be like that bitch over there. I don't know. Or, I, I, th- I think a woman would probably <laughs> take more offense to being called a bitch over over a dame. No, I'm saying for the time. For the time, though. <laughs> I, I don't know. know. I don't know if that's equivalent. I don't know. Because you know, like, you, you you hear people use the word. Uh, I mean, I've heard it before in movies, but I, I guess it is more derogatory toward a female. Well, Bogart, Bogart, but Bogart was infamous. Hey, doll face. Well, like, yeah, I mean, he would call girls doll or something like that. Yeah, but I mean, that was different though, because he was like. He was more suave about it. Well, I mean, yeah, not only was he being suave about it, but he's he was also trying to be a little bit romantic about it as well. You know, like if you watch yeah. Casablanca or even The Big Sleep, you know, he's he's wooing those women. You know, those those women aren't really like, you know, film fatales. Yeah, that's true. You know, and, you know, in this movie, Laura, you know, is she a film fatale? That's a huge question mark in this film. See, that's what I was going to ask. Like that that's that's like one of the things that that I was kind of curious about was like in a certain way she does fit the characteristics of a femme fatale, but in other ways she doesn't. I don't know. It, that's one of those things where they're kind of tricking, trying to trick you, you know, where it's like, is she yeah, a femme fatale ambi- or is she not? Yeah. It's very ambiguous. I mean, um, cause the whole thing is like, you know, Laura, when you go see the movie, like the very first line of the film is I'll never forget the weekend Laura died or was murdered. Yeah. I guess I should say, yeah. or, what was it? She died. I forget what the actual line is, but like our, the, the main, the movie starts with the main character dead. And that's, that's pretty cool. All right. Well, I think with that, uh, we're going to take a break now. We're going to play the trailer for Laura and guys, when we come back, we're going to get into a spoiler filled discussion. We are going to spoil this movie. So if you have not seen it, Go watch it first. Come back. Listen to the rest of the show. I promise you, it's a murder mystery. All right? Don't ruin the mystery. Watch it. I remember when Laura bought these glasses. She loved them. I was groping for some way to keep Laura's name out of it. She was always quick to seize upon anything that would improve her mind or her appearance. Laura had innate breeding. I selected a more attractive hairdress for her. I taught her what clothes were more becoming to her. Through me, she met everyone. Men admired her. Women envied her. You have rarely met a girl like Laura. Few women have been so beautiful, so exotic, so dangerous to know. You're Laura Hunt, aren't you? Yes. I'm Shelby Carpenter. Want to dance? I'm not alone. Oh, you poor girl. I bet he still does the polka. Yes. Betsy Ross taught it to me. It was as natural for Laura to be picked out from among thousands of alluring girls as it was for her to be surrounded by luxury, mystery, and scheming men. Get going. You better watch out, McPherson, or you'll end up in a psychiatric ward. I don't think I've ever had a patient who fell in love with a corpse. Miss Hunt and I were going to be married this week, you know. No, he doesn't know, and neither do I, or you, or anyone else alive. What do you mean by that? As a matter of fact, she was going to the country to think it over. 
She was extremely kind, but I was always sure she would never have thrown her life away on a male beauty in distress. Every woman will feel that when it comes to men, Laura gets by with murder. Every man will feel that when it comes to murder, it couldn't involve a more enticing girl. Don't worry. I told you I'd bring in the killer today. Yeah, I was just going to make the arrest when you called. No, I can't tell you now. I'm not alone. You'll see when I come in. All right, we're back. That was a trailer for 1944's Laura. Uh, it is a film noir. Film noir, of course, meaning black film, dark film. We'll take either definition. It's fine. A French word yep. for, for, a, for an art form that was founded in Germany. Rooted in German expressionalism. Think of like Fritz Lang and how Fritz Lang kind of evolved from there. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the Maltese Falcon and how that's kind of like considered some by some film historians to be the first film noir. I think the big three that you have to see film noirs, Maltese Falcon, Double Indemnity, and number three, Laura. Yep. Now, I, I guess not when I was putting those, I don't, I don't put those in that order. They're all three great films, but those are the three I think you have to see. Yeah, they they are definitely probably the definite. If you're just getting started into new war, they're 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 the three films to watch. Like they're definitely the go-to movies for new war. And if you've never seen any of Fritz Lang stuff, um, and and you like film noir, highly recommend M. Check it out. It, it's it's kind of a dark movie for when it was made. Yeah. I mean, you know, once again, going back to that, there was a period there where, you you know, you have lots and lots of film noirs. Um, so there, there are lots of, you know, free to choose from. Let's go into Laura. We start with the 20th Century Fox logo. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. still, they still had the same damn logo in 1944. Yep, and this was actually uh, pretty shortly after 20th Century Fox became 20th Century Fox. Because originally 20th Century Fox was two different corporate or two different film studios. You had 20th Century Studios and you had Fox Films. That's right. Good old Daryl Zanuck, who was, yep. uh, I guess, he was the head of the studio when this movie was made. Yeah, um, he was. He got Otto Priminger to uh, direct and produce it. Well, okay, so originally there was another director hi- that was hired, and Otto Priminger was just the producer. And mm-hmm. for some reason, he was fired. I guess Otto and Daryl Zanuck were not happy with what he was doing, and Otto Priminger came in and, and kind of took over and reshot like everything this dude shot. I forget the original director. This is all Otto Priminger's film, I guess is, is what I was getting at with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you in, in the beginning, you get this little bit of a narrative, and I, and I kind of like that little... Oh, you know with the narration? You, yeah, that kind of sets you up for what's going on. I enjoyed the scene when McPherson is, is, you know, standing out there waiting and, and you get this moment where he picks up something in one of the cases and you hear a voice where it's like, put that down. That's priceless. You know? Yeah. And it sounds it's like it's like, like coming from like right beside him. Yeah. And you would think, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe the guy that's talking is maybe he's on, on the phone and McPherson was just waiting on him. And it cuts to this dude sitting in the fucking bathtub. Oh, yeah. Waldo is straight up in a... <laughs> just sitting there typing in the bath. Yeah. Oh, my. It's 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 ridiculous. I like the way Otto uh, brings the whole scene in, too. Like, 
the the way the movie is shot and and the way that the sounds done it does sound like he's like right off camera then when mcpherson like starts walking over that he does this really crazy whip pan from mcpherson enter the room to waldo in the bathtub and it does man it is kind of shocking where you're like wait a minute that dude's in a bathtub what what the hell it's another it's so weird because he didn't tell us me clears and he's like oh well can you hand me my robe and he just here's my joke now hand me that robe oh no what was great about that is because <laughs> waldo stands up he's off camera obviously because they're not going to show male frontal nudity in a 1944 flick yeah much less like that rarely happens period even now so <laughs> it happens off screen yeah. so you get mcpherson's close-up and he actually looks down at the at the guy's junk. Yeah, he does. He looks down at his junk, <laughs> and he laughs. He does. A, he's got a little smile on his face. He smirks. It's like, what are you? What is yeah. going on here? What the fuck is this movie? Like, I would honestly say, out of uh, pretty much like everything in this movie. I feel like this is the most risque moment in the entire film. Well, it's 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 so bizarre to introduce a character that way, but I mean, it it works for the Waldo uh, Lysander character, or I forget what it is. Yeah, name. because Lys, what's his yeah, last Wal- name? Yeah, Waldo Lydecker. Lydecker. That's not yeah. Lysander's. The, yeah. That's a guy from a Shakespeare yeah. play, um, or Shakespeare. Yeah, Waldo Lydecker. <laughs> but once again, it goes into like you were saying with, with Lydecker's character where he's this, he's a writer and he's, he's a bit eccentric and oh, he's a dick. Um, he's rude. Yeah. And lives this lavish lifestyle kind of separated from the average people that he kind of looks, you know, to be below him. Oh yeah. Definitely. Like one of these high society snobs. Yes. When they said he was a writer, I immediately started joking. Uh, my wife, when I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, he must be a writer for The New Yorker. And <laughs> Sorry to Damn anybody that likes The New Yorker. But, <laughs> but it is kind of – it comes across that way. And I was, I, was, yeah. I was joking with her. But then I, when I was looking up the research uh, for, like, the person in real life that that was based off of, it was based off of some uh, New York critic from The New Yorker. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was hilarious. Because it, it totally gives you that sense of vibe, like even today, like you know what I mean. It's like, oh yeah, all right. <laughs> we here at the New Yorker, we don't have assholes. Uh, I mean, you know, the, look, uh, Waldo dresses real nice too. Like even when he's getting ready in the morning, like he is going through a whole rigmarole putting on his. Yeah, suit. man. I mean, yeah, this dude's got like he keeps carnations, fresh carnations on stock yeah right i mean dude just to put in his lapel yeah even his little handkerchief like he he stuffs yeah. it in there like a pro though he does it and it's mm-hmm. like oh man that's not gonna turn out looking good and then he's got it in there and it's like oh 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 never mind <laughs> and i mean like this is a, a day-to-day mode of dress for this guy i like mcpherson um dana andrews they give him a little bit of business he's got this cool little um what is it it's one of those little baseball games where you you have to try to get the little metal balls and all the yeah, in the, into the bases. Yeah, the little holes that are yeah where the bases are in the outfield. But it's a prop that they give him something to do in the movie, and it's it's nice. And plus, you give something for the other characters, especially Lidecker, who actually talks smack to him about playing that game like three different times in the movie. It gives him something to do, like when other characters are arguing, and it gives him a, a reason not a, to like step in right away until he also makes it. Well, he also makes it comment where he said that um it relieves stress like it's a stress reliever to him that thing is racking my nerves yes but it keeps me calm yep that's a, that's pretty much the line right there <laughs> i forget yes yep. it's, it's something like that 
almost kind of get this vibe that he knows that that kind of gets on Lidecker's nerves. So that's kind of why he does it again later on in the movie. Oh, uh, McPherson's is a really bizarre detective. When you like, he doesn't he really a very. Yes. I mean, he does a little bit of detective work, but he mostly just kind of like invites everybody or like he just in, invades everyone's life and just kind of watches them. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what he does. Because <laughs> the Waldo character, he, he actually wants to come along with the detective because the detective is going to go and interview all of, uh, you know, Laura because she's been murdered. She's been shot in the very beginning of the movie. with yeah, a shotgun. OK, I, I want to ask you a question. Is it was it? I mean, I don't know a lot about 1940s police detective work. But was that common practice or commonplace to to bring one spe- suspect no. <laughs> who you know who you know is a is a columnist or a critic who could easily write an article about you or to interview another suspect in a murder? Uh, well, I don't know. You know, maybe McPherson's really likes a journalist. He seemed like he had a, a good run in with the past because uh, Waldo even knows him in the movie. He's like, "Oh yeah, you're the you're the guy that got the gangster." Yeah, yeah there was like some machine gun shootout, yeah, then, and then McPherson's he, went in and got him. Yeah, yeah didn't he get injured? And he refers to McPherson as uh, what does he refer to him as? Oh, yeah, uh, something like uh, the leaden leaden legged man or lead leg, yeah, or yes. something like that. Yeah, because something he, he got shot in the leg. Yeah, exactly. He does invite him along, and I, I mean, I'm okay with it, though. I know it's kind of silly in the movie, but it yeah, works. But it works. You know, and it's it's good shorthand, too. It gives some funny jokes and some breakouts when, when he, they start going to some of the other people. Because the first person he, he visits after Waldo is um, Laura's aunt, who's... Yeah, Anne Treadwell. Yeah, who's shacked up with Vincent Price, who is Laura's fucking fiance. She's the sugar mama he's always been looking for. Well, dude, they almost give it like it's kind of like a Midnight Cowboy. Like he's John Voight's character in Midnight Cowboy. Like he's like kind of a gigolo, <laughs> like coming to New York. Yeah. You know, he's yeah, like, because <laughs> he's the Kentucky yeah. boy. You know what I mean? I cannot stop thinking of Midnight Cowboy the entire time. I'm walking here. Yeah, I'm walking. I, uh, I, I, get, I definitely get that vibe, too. Yeah, because he is um, totally, like, just skeezing all over Laura's aunt. Yeah, she's all about it, dude. I, I really got the, the sense that Shelby Carpenter was taking advantage of Laura's aunt. Until you get that scene a little bit later where she confronts Laura, the aunt does, and she's like, yeah. look, Shelby she's belongs like, we're with both me. Just, yeah, we're both just horrible. Well, people, and we're meant to be for we're meant for one another. I know. Yeah, it's, yeah we're both weak. It's dude. It's a great scene. I'm weak for Shelby. Shelby's weak because I give him large sums of money. McPherson does question her about money that she has given to Shelby's character. Dude, that's why I straight up called him a gigolo, dude. He is getting paid, yeah. and he's getting paid a lot. Wasn't it like fifteen hundred or seventeen hundred dollars? Dude, in 1944, dude, in that's, 1944 kind of, know. that's like giving that dude $147,000. That is so much money. It's like, what are you doing you know, for that Vincent Price? You, you got the honeypot right there, buddy. Uh, well, he, he is a total scuzz bucket in the movie, too, because it's also revealed that Vincent Price's character actually in the movie gets hired by Laura in a flashback yeah. to work at her ad agency. And then one of the models... <laughs> That they hire Vincent Price starts banging. What was her name? Uh, Diane Redfern, I think, or something like that. Yeah, Diane Redfern. Yeah, and he, dude, he just starts banging her on the side. Freaking Laura's no better. Man, she just runs around and kisses guys. Okay, 
That's Laura, all. Laura is no better or no worse than Vincent Price's character in this freaking movie. I don't okay, know. Uh, okay, so here we go. I'm going to make the comparison. So Vincent Price is using Laura's aunt and Treadwell for money, right? Yeah. But then Laura is using Lidecker to sponsor the freaking pen so she can get more money. Well, okay, but that's, that's not fair. They call that out in the movie to specifically say, I mean, even Lidecker called it out. Like, she got where she was through her own initiative because she was good. Yes. He just helped, yes. he helped open some doors for her, you know, and that's like his whole grooming thing. Because like, there's this flashback, like, you meet all your suspects that, you know, that we talked about. It's, it's really those main three. And then you get this flashback and you get to see how both Lidecker and Carpenter kind of fall in love with Laura. And Lidecker's version of it is it's it's kind I mean, of like he's, uh, he's Jimmy total, Stewart in in um in Vertigo. Yeah. He he's he's a total douche to her when he first meets her. Oh yeah, that's a great scene, man. Yeah. He he is just a total dick. And I don't I mean, write she, with a pen. She, I write with a quill dipped in venom. It's like, oh, dude, that's such a good line. I mean, like she straight breaks him off. She's like, "Well, you know, sorry for bothering you, dickhole." Well, I don't know if she says dickhole. I mean... In 1940s terms, she does. <laughs> it was the equivalent of it. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it was the equivalent of I it. Mean, and he feels bad, and he comes back. But that's what I think is so is so interesting, though, um, about the Waldo Lidecker character. In, like, I understand Vincent Price's character and why he wants Laura. Like, obviously, this guy is pretty promiscuous. He likes having sex with women. But Waldo, you don't ever see him touch Laura inappropriately, make an inappropriate move. You don't even see the man go in for a kiss. No, but he sure as hell pans over her ass, though. He doesn't want Laura for himself to control, but he, like, he wants to be Laura. Like, like he's living vicariously through her. While he's living vicariously through her, he also doesn't want to kind of share her with anyone else. I feel that he get, he gets like like this weird obsession with her. But see that's 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 what's so weird in the movie though because they don't show Laura like interact with somebody that that Lidecker would even approve of. You know what I mean? Cuz you know he's not going to approve of Shelby the, and he doesn't approve of the character well, because they're yeah. not high society. These are like people that are beneath him. Country bumpkin white trash. Yeah, he even calls him like some oh, I forget what he he calls him something where he's like yeah, you Kentucky, you know, like hick or some some 40s derogatory shit talking. And then again, dude, you ain't meeting somebody every week for dinner and not diddling them. Um, dude, come on. I mean, look at what they're doing. Look, I, mean, he, I don't know. I always Lidecker puts himself. He was romantically in, involved with her, though. No, dude, you don't, you don't see them kiss ever. No, but, but you, do you see her really? Well,. Yeah. Yeah, you see you, you see some kind of like romantic <laughs> yeah. interest from her. Like even when she meets Vincent Price and there's that scene where they meet out on the balcony and she's yeah. kind of giving him shit like, "Oh, you're a rich boy. All you care about's women and money." And then he's just like, "No, you know, I'm actually true. broke." And then, you know, that's when she feels sorry for him and lets him in. But I'm actually broke, but I still do care about women and money. <laughs> I think that's all that guy cares about. He's he's a pretty shallow fuck. And look, yeah, Vincent he, is. Price, <laughs> he does play himself. I, mean, I love you, Vincent Price. You're 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 a great actor, but you play a shallow fucking dick very well in this movie. So uh, we get the flashback with there there too, but like when we come out of the flashback, 
that's when McPherson, he starts obsessing over and kind of falling in love with Laura. The scene when he goes back to her apartment and he just like decides to pretty much make himself at home there and, you know, (laughs) pour some some scotch. Yeah, I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink a half a bottle of scotch and just fucking pass out here. Oh, dude, that's a brilliant scene. I love that. That's one of my favorite parts in the film. At this point in time of the movie was when I started to get my own suspicions about who the actual killer was. See, this was is because this is the part of the oh, movie oh. where it throws me off, though. Well, no, see, there's one telltale thing that gives it away is when the line is given to McPherson about being obsessed and falling for a dead girl. When that line is said to him, I was just like, you are so jealous of this chick that you were even jealous of her after her death. Oh, yeah. Well, see, that is weird. Yeah. I guess now when I watch, uh, now when I watch it, I just think that he's just in there to try to get the clock back because that is a thing that like Lidecker's doing throughout the, the movie. Like, He's like, oh, I want to get this vase and this screen thing over here, and I got to get this clock. And the the clock is like a a huge important part of the movie, and the director always does a real good job of framing the clock somewhere in the movie. She hasn't even been dead long enough to, like, (laughs) go through any kind of, like, will or anything like that, you know, for an attorney or anything like that. He's already talking about, well, I want this, and I want oh, yeah. that, no, she's I only, want this. She's, she hasn't even been dead the whole weekend yet at this point in the movie. Yeah, she had died on Friday, and this movie taking place that Sunday. In that scene where he's obsessing over her, and he's getting, he's getting drunk, this part of the movie feels very film noir to me. And just yeah. the way the shots are framed. And this movie gets a lot of uh, crap. I was, man, I was reading a lot of people were complaining about the lack of camera movement and how this isn't, you know, photographed well. And I have to totally disagree. I'm going to use this, yeah. this section of the movie right here as an example. Because when McPherson falls asleep drunk in the chair, if you look at the shot, and I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a 4-3 framed because it's a 1944 movie. They didn't have like huge widescreens that came out after TVs were invented. So that's why widescreen was invented to compete with television and television was in the format. It was to emulate movie screens. So you see how this goes. But he, he falls asleep and he's down in the in the bottom right corner and the portrait of Laura, which is constantly like in every frickin frame in the uh, in, mm. in Laura's apartment it's it's just right it's always in in a shot the camera dollies in on his face and then it holds there for a while and then it dollies back and you see the portrait again and that's when uh, gene tierney comes in man at this point yeah at this point in the movie i did think he was dreaming because how that dolly yeah, shot I mean, goes the scene definitely definitely does come across as um being a, a dream sequence and, and it's kind of crazy when you do find out that he's not dreaming Laura's really here. Laura's in the flesh. She's alive. You know, the original ending of this movie was it was going to be a dream. That was oh, the, it was? Yeah, that was the original ending of the movie. Uh, and it, they even shot it, apparently. And because uh, that's, that's, that's what Daryl Zanuck wanted. Fucking hit a fox. I, no, I'm, I'm making fun of the guy because he's kind of a producer. And, you know, like it's fun. It, it's fun to make fun of producers, whatever. Okay, I'm an editor. It's fun. All right. It's what I do. Yeah. But the guy did make a lot of great choices. This, however, 
was not a good choice. <laughs> and apparently after he screened the film with a, a couple other people, he quickly realized it. it was like, all right, all right, Otto, just do whatever the fuck you were going to do. Whatever. Get on my face. I was wrong. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> he was, he was, he was that kind of guy. What are you going to do? He was the head of a studio. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. Those guys don't like being told they're wrong. Okay. Even if they are wrong, don't tell them that was somebody else's fault. <laughs> At this point in time, Laura's obviously not dead. She's still alive. Oh, no, it's a great plot well, device, man. As an audience member, it's great. Hell, who the hell died, then? Yeah, like, right? That's the first thing that goes through your mind. Who died in your apartment? <laughs> what the Sam hell is happening here? Yeah, what the Sam hell is happening? I think that is one of uh, Dana Andrews' best little bits. Like, when his McPherson character gets up and, like, sees her, that is actual genuine shock. Yeah, what the hell's happening? It's it is the Twilight Zone. Yeah, he's got a he's got a great face, man. And that now that Laura's back, she's no longer like just the dead victim that we're feeling sorry for in the audience. She's actual now, like a, a potential suspect in the movie. And when yeah, she came back, she she was my number murder. one. Well, I mean, they quickly find out and they tell you that it's uh, they know that it's Diane Redfern. Like Laura finds a, yeah. a dress in her uh, room that doesn't belong to her, and then of course the the coroner figures it out and, and calls like minutes later. Yeah. To inform them that, yeah, that is a, uh, that's not Laura. I did like that because yeah, that, I mean, that was one thing I was answering. Like, wait a minute. Wouldn't they eventually figure that out? And then like, right as I was thinking that in the movie, <laughs> they had that you scene. Get the call. Yeah. The character, Laura really has no quarrel with kind of incriminating herself because he's like, well, where have you been? Oh, well, I was up in my house in the country. You don't have a radio? Oh, it's broken. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost kind of on McPherson's sides here. Like, you know, sure the radio could be broken. I mean, she's really pretty. <laughs> because that's kind of how yeah. McPherson's is responding. He does check no, the radio. Exactly, that's like kind of how. That's exactly how he responds to that. <laughs> Because he tells her, like, you know, don't go anywhere. Don't let anybody know you're alive. Don't call or contact anybody. And the minute he walks out of her place, you know, they've, they've tapped her phone lines. And she calls. And he straight Vincent hears Francis. the conversation, yeah, that, he, that she has with Shelby. That's when you get, like, the whole big, huge plot. Because he follows Shelby back to Laura's cabin to check a gun. Because at this point, Vincent Price, is, his character is pretty sure that Laura is the murderer. And they, well, see, that's another thing, and also does make Shelby's character look guilty because, you know, he gave Laura a shotgun, and the girl that died died by a shotgun blast, and it just so happened to be the girl that he, one of his many women that he was diddling. The minute Laura shows up, it just throws all your suspect lists like out the window and you're like, what the fuck is going? Cause at that point, it, literally everybody pretty much, but Lidecker looks guilty. Oh yeah. Like yeah. I stopped yeah, suspecting. I really stopped suspecting Lidecker. Cause like even when he realizes and sees Laura's alive for the first time, like he straight up faints. Yeah. And it's like, Oh damn, that dude, he really missed her. And he, no, you, you watch it knowing the end and knowing that he's the killer. <laughs> You're like, oh, he's fainting because, like, he's probably having, like, a telltale heart moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then she comes back, and he's like, holy crap, she's not dead. Who the fuck did I kill? Oh, my God. Who did, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who did I kill? Who did I murder? Because so you, you know the yeah, minute he woke up out of his faint spell. He was like, who the fuck did I murder? Oh, shit. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, no, I got the wrong one. The Waldo character shoots Diane Redfern in the face, right? Thinking it was Laura answering the door because yes. she was in Laura's apartment diddling Shelby. Yes, which is also, ironically, I don't mean to interrupt you, which is also a very stupid place to take your sad piece to your current piece's house. Well, she already found out. She already found out about her because uh, Lidecker tells Laura in the movie that, you know, Shelby's cheating on her. And there's the whole thing with the cigarette case where Diane Redfern had pawned it and, you know, she gave it to Shelby. Yeah. Or Laura gave it to Shelby and Diane Redfern went and pawned it. Yeah. She got all mad, and that's why that's why she was out in the country, you know, thinking the marriage over to begin yeah, with. The engagement, yeah. You know, once again, he, he Waldecker is trying to paint Shelby as being guilty as hell. Like he he is is basically throwing all the blame on this guy. In the first part of the movie, I could not see him as the killer. Well, I mean, I think another thing is this: like, like when he has the conversation with laura about mcpherson he, you know he starts questioning her well are you are you kind of into him now you know he's not a, a decent man he he refers to women as dames and okay let's go into that because that's my least favorite part of the whole movie is the mcpherson and laura falling in love that it, is just so weird it is not played out like they are together for maybe over a little over 24 hours and they they share a kiss and they're in love and she just broke up with vincent price who she was engaged to and it it does kind of make her seem a little hussiest in 1944 i'm just saying you know i'm like i don't want to judge people you know like hey you know sometimes you meet that one at the right time i mean but man there to me there's not a lot of difference in between her and vincent price on that level i you know i mean they're kind of they're kind of two peas in the same pod, almost. Yeah, but I mean, it's Vincent Price. Like, I mean, like, come on, man. Gene, Gene, Gene Tierney is so out of Vincent Price's league; it's insane. Oh yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's almost, it's almost worth laughing at. That's like me hanging out I mean, with once Gene again, Tierney. You're not gonna buy. It. Well, see, you get you get this weird conversational piece between Ann Treadwell and Laura. You know, you know, you can almost, you can pretty much eliminate her from the equation all you want at this point in time because you know all she wants to do is be with Shelby, and Shelby, all he wants to do is chase women and and, and spend money. Well, th- so after that party scene, you're talking about like, I mean, it's pretty clear that Vincent Price ends up with Lars on, like <laughs> yeah. he's when he gets gut punched. Yeah, yeah, McPherson punches him in the gut for being a. A slime ball cheating douchebag, and he gets he, there's a there's a moment in the movie where he gets on the phone and he's like, "Yes, I'm arresting the killer today," but he's yeah he's real loud and he says it like right in front of everyone and like everybody yeah I know who they are they're in the room and I'll be bringing them in within an hour and then he brings in Laura again like when you're watching the movie love it and everything but the interrogation mm. scene that follows is it's really bizarre it's and weak. It's weird watching it now. I don't think it's weak. It's, it's not just, even really. It's it not even really an interrogation scene. Though. I mean, it's really not. No, he's totally interrogating her to find out. Okay, when when Laura first shows up, she says she's not going to marry Shelby. But then the next yeah. day, the proposal's back on. Well, it's because Vincent Price. Well, he thinks, talks you. He talks you back into it again. Yeah, it, it's because Vincent Price thinks she's the killer, and he, he's trying to protect her. 
and she's just going along with it because she thinks she thinks she's trying to protect him because he's got this reputation of being a playboy womanizer. So she's well, not only that, but he was kind of a bit of a coward because he kind of hid while the other girl got, got shot in the apartment. So yeah, but what McPherson's <laughs> really trying to interrogate her is is you know it's at the end of the day it's like. So what's up, honey? Are you are you with Vincent Price or are you broken up with him? I need to know because if you are, are we, we going to hook up? Are I'm going to make a move. Up? Is this what we're doing? Because I mean, you know, I, I need to know. And there's a line that I found really weird at the end of it, where at the end of the scene, you know, he's going to let her go, and she's like, "No, I was never going to marry Shelby. I don't see how I could ever be in love with him." The main thing I want to know is why you pulled that switch on me about Carpenter. You told me last night you decided not to marry him. Yes, I guess I did. But today it was on again. Why? Well, I... I changed my mind. What are you trying to hide? Don't you realize you're involved in the murder? You've got yourself in a jam it's not going to be easy to get out of, unless you're on the level with me. This is no time for secrets. Now, did you really decide to call it off? Or did you just tell me that? Because you knew I wanted to hear it. What went on between you and Carpenter when you saw him last night? Did he persuade you to make up? Or did you agree to pretend you had? Was that it? Well, we... That is, both of us thought... He convinced you that if you broke the engagement now, people would think you believed he was guilty. Yes. But now I know it was only because he thought I was. Did you believe he was guilty? No, I'm sure he isn't. But he'd gotten himself into an awfully suspicious position. And he's the sort of man that people are always ready to believe the worst about. Are you in love with him? I don't see how I ever could have been. Come on, you're going home. But I thought I was... That's, that's what I wanted you to think. You and a few others. I didn't even book you. You mean this was some sort of a game? I was 99% certain about you. But I had to get rid of that 1% doubt. Wasn't there an easier way to make sure? I reached a point where I needed official surroundings. Official surroundings? Yeah. What the hell is that? That's so weird. What, what is that? It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to carry you downtown and put you in an interrogation office to see if you're done with your ex-man. Yeah, it is. It is. It is bizarre. Like watching it today. Like I understand what they're getting at. And if you turn your brain off and and just enjoy it and don't really think about it, it is a good romantic moment because the actors, Dana Andrews and Gene Tierney, they have pretty good chemistry together. And when yeah. he's smiling at her, you know, kind of doing his Humphrey Bogart impression that he's trying to do. And looking the happiest that he looks the entire movie. Yeah. And, like, you know, when you, when you see that bright light, light, that interrogation light on Gene Tierney, and, she, and they just turn it off. And, man, she looks amazing and so, so beautiful. And it's like, I mean, I understand why he falls in love with her. I mean, I, I get it. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I can see that. But, I mean. It is weirdly and creepily handled when you watch it today, though. It's. Yes, very much so. It, it is It is very strange. If you watch it today, it really is Laura being pined over and, and, and obsessed by these guys that have these weird fixation and ideas of some kind of image that they're projecting onto the woman as opposed to actually loving the woman herself. Well, And she also, in her own way, almost has this like puppet master kind of control over really all three of the, the male characters in this movie. McPherson's doesn't even know her. 
like he falls in love with her but by looking at that fucking painting on the wall. Yeah. He falls is, in love with the fucking portrait, man. You know what weird. I mean? Yeah. So and, weird. And Lidecker, he just makes her into like you go through that whole montage sequence and he is like straight up grooming her. And if you can watch the extended cut of Laura, the only deleted scene from this film, uh, minus the ending that I don't I think is lost to time. I don't think we're ever gonna see the the deleted ending for the film. But there the only deleted scene is in that section where uh where Waldo is is grooming Laura and like he does her hair and um like buys her new clothes. And the only reason it was cut out of the film and I really wish they kept it in because I think it, it shows like how he was like in just every facet of her life, almost like how, what toothpaste she used to brush your fucking teeth. Um, yeah, he was he was really controlling. But the reason that scene was cut out, did. the studio made it because you know the movie was made during wartime. The studio felt that nobody would like the characters because it's like, oh, you guys are out partying, having a great time in the middle of a fucking war. Yeah, well, we're all suffering and sending our loved ones off to fight and die. So they decided to cut that. It was probably for the best at the time, but yeah, I really think that's one of those moments that, that needs to be in the movie. It's it's a good deleted scene. Finally realized that, yeah, that the clock that is in Laura's apartment was a clock that was gave to her by Waldo. And I guess it's cop intuition. That makes him just bust the bottom of the clock open. Well, there's there's and two clocks. There's one in in Waldo's apartment, and then there's one in Laura's apartment. Well, see, that's the, that's another thing. Like, he actually opens the one in Laura's apartment, but the one in Waldo's apartment, he like kicks the damn bottom of it in. Well, I think it's like, oh, he'll never he'll never notice that the whole bottom of his clock is busted all the hell. Well, it had that it had that little. What I don't know, that little cabinet area, he could have closed that and he wouldn't have seen. Whatever, Walter was at that other apartment anyway. But, you know, the first time watching this movie, man, I did not get right away when he broke it that that's where the murder weapon would be stored. And that's where Waldo ends up storing the gun in Laura's place. So he, mm-hmm. he shoots Diane Redford and then stores the gun and the clock that he gave Laura. I, did not, yeah. I, did, I didn't get that until he was explaining it later. When he starts, like, opening up, and he's like, all I need is the murder weapon. And that's when I was like, oh, that's what you're fucking doing. Laura kicks Lidecker out of the apartment. You know, she's like, look, all you do is talk shit about other men I date. Get the fuck out of my life. He leaves, and um, McPherson comes back in. He figures the whole plot out, tells Laura. He's like, I'm going to go arrest Lidecker. You stay here. Forget about everything like it was a bad dream. When Lidecker leaves, he clearly hangs out in the hallway. And that's the last shot you see of him. And it's a, it's a great, very film noir shot where you see him on the hallway. You see his shadow projected behind yeah. him. It, man, it's, it's very beautiful. And then McPherson locks the door behind him. And I've always had a problem. With, like, even the first time watching this movie, it was like, how the fuck does Waldo get back in the apartment? I noticed this viewing that there is a butler's entry or like a servant entry or a maid entry, whatever the fuck it was called. But there's a servant door that Waldo must obviously go into. But at the same time, it's like, mm-hmm. McPherson, if you're going to lock her front door, why don't you lock that door too, you fucking asshole? He's like, yeah, I mean, it's like Waldo's not going to go through right, the servant entrance. Yeah, I mean, it's right there, because that's the door he ends up kicking in to get back into the apartment. Yeah. Not the double doors, but no. the other side door. Well, no, he, go, he goes back through the locked doors, the ones that he locked. It's like, I, it, the way the blocking is in the, the end... 
and I know they reshot the end. I guess I shouldn't really complain about it because this is a movie where the detective's like, hey, c- come with me. <laughs> come with me, suspects, and let's investigate this crime together. <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah. I guess I really shouldn't be complaining about it. I guess it's kind of silly to complain about. But it does bother me because the rest of the movie, like, logistically, even though I know it's a, it's a, it's a fantasy detective story, it, it, it fits. It's a good, like, hard-boiled mystery, and I'm, I'm in it. Yeah. And that's yeah. the one part where I'm like, I don't understand how the fuck Waldo. And then, like, Waldo, like, just brings out shotgun shells from his pocket. Which I, he was prepared. Well, I thought that was a stupid decision. It's like, why not have him get the shotgun shells from in the clock? Why not have some spares in there that the detective yeah. just didn't see? Or, you know what I mean? Like, I would just, I, I feel like the movie is so well thought out. And it's when we get to the end, there's just some like logistic and blocking issues that are going on. And another thing is that kind of that kind of confused me. Is, that that kind of got me was is is. Lydecker actually makes the comment of he's going to talk about be discussing um, love on his show. Oh, I like that. Laura cuts her radio on, and she is listening to the show, right? Now, he says that he's going to be on live. No, no, no. It's a a a pre-recorded broadcast. I mean, when she turns the radio on, they they say that. It's a pre-recorded broadcast, right? Before, yeah, they, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they yeah. do. Yeah. I don't. I don't. They do say it was previously recorded. They they may have said something about live, but I mean, it's obvious that he's he's recorded it before. <laughs> when did you have time to record this? Look, show? it was it was when they were out at the the country home, dude, and he was out, you know, doing his his work. I don't know. <laughs> Okay. I don't know who. I knows. got you. All right. All right, cool. I mean, I know, I know that's just reading into it a little bit too much at this point. Well, yeah. I mean, again, yeah. Like, I guess my problems, I think, with the end are nitpicky and stupid. Really, at the end of the day, but it's something that I've just I've noticed watching the film over and over again. It, it's it kind of bothers me a little bit because I I feel like oh man, that's that's kind of lazy and everything else in here, like the blocking and the way characters are moving and the framing and how he'll put uh auto uh Priminger will just put both Clifton Webb and Dana Andrews in Laura's apartment and the way he'll frame him and put the painting in between them or put the painting over, you know, Clifton's shoulder or over his, you know, head and, and, and shot. I think, man, I just think all of this is really just superbly done. And I think that's why yeah, it makes it is. Those little teeny things that are just a little off, and it really accentuates them and makes them stick out, you know? Yeah. Because this movie is really fast, and this this end does slow down. It needs to slow down a little bit here to create suspense. Yeah, it does. The end does slow down, and it does give you a little bit of suspense because you think, you know, that, that Waldor is going gonna, is gonna to shoot Laura, and oh, he tries McPherson to. comes in. Yeah, and then McPherson comes in, at, at the last minute, and he shoots Waldo. Goodbye, my love. I love you, Laura. I'm sorry I tried to murder you and, then, <laughs> and possess yeah, you and, Laura, and control you. And Laura straight runs into McPherson's arms, and well, the movie does fade out. Solved. The movie does fade out on the portrait, though. I do like that. It starts on the portrait, ends yeah. on the portrait. It's a nice bookend to the yeah. movie. That's actually just a photograph of Gene Tierney. That they threw some paint over, some some basic oil paint 
that they just threw over top of it. It's actually a photograph. But when you watch the movie, you know, it's black and white, and the resolution is not the greatest. You can't tell at all. You you really can't tell. No, I mean, dude, it looks great. looks great. I also do like the end credits of this film. Uh, It's an older movie, so most of the credits are actually in the front, but at the very end... You do get you do get a nice little uh, you can buy your war bonds in the theater. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a war bonds advertisement. <laughs> yeah, it's in the bottom like what the bottom right, bottom right or bottom left? I can't remember. But it's in the, the lower third of the frame. Uh, it's I I like that they actually left that in the film. I'm glad they didn't get rid of that. Me too. And if I'm not mis- mistaken, do not quote me on this. And I could be wrong. But I believe Gene Tierney was part of Stars Across America, which was a joint operation pretty much that was done by the United States government and Hollywood to sell war bonds. She was doing her part. Like, uh, <laughs> I saw some uh, old uh, newsreel footage of Gene Tierney, like, naming a couple of the uh, the bombs that are going to be dropped on Nazis and, you know, like, naming the planes. Like, I thought that was cool. You know, she, she had, like, a little chalk out there naming them. Yeah, it definitely was a different time. All right. So, Paul, I think uh, we've gotten to the end of Laura here. Uh, why don't you give us your final thoughts your grade, your stars, your ranking? Well, I mean, I, I do enjoy the way this movie is filmed. If if we're going to, you know, go with it being a new war, visually, it, it's not so much of what you would normally consider a new war. But when it comes to the subject matter, yeah, definitely. Um, the subject matter fits everything that a new war is. The characters are really good. Gene Tierney, Dana Andrews, you know, they're they're great in this film. Vincent Price, you know, I, I freaking love Vincent Price. I think, you know, he, he's a phenomenal actor. And to see him play in this movie and to see him play a role, unlike a role, I've, I've never seen him in a role like this because everything I've pretty much seen him in has been horror-related. So to see him in a role like this is is something you know it was, it was it was something that was very new and interesting to me. Overall, I think this is a great movie. Otto Preminger does a, a fantastic job with his with his filming. I do kind of wish that there was a little bit more of that noir lighting to this movie. But yeah, as for the writing, I feel like again, you know, straight meat and potatoes. You get what you're getting with this movie. You're not getting BS filler and or or side stories. You're you're getting the essential things that you need to know. I can totally respect that, and it doesn't feel like the movie really misses a beat. It feels like once you start watching it, that roller coaster ride just continues to go. And especially for the time that it came out in. And, you know, once again, some of the darker, more taboo subject matter that it does cover. Yeah, man, I think it's a great film. Yeah, dude, look, I'm going to have to echo most of what you just said. Um, the reason we're covering this is because it's a movie from 1944 that you should see. Okay, I'm not going to go out and say that every movie from the 40s and 30s and 40s you should watch. Yeah, some of them are really boring. Some of them are out of date. Some of them are just really bad. They don't connect to a modern audience. 
This movie is not one of those. But it, you know, at the end of the day, I really think it's it's it it's all about the supporting characters. To me, it's Clifton Webb and it's Vince, Vincent Price. Those guys are great. They make this movie. I mean, they are so terrific. And I don't want to take anything away from Jean Tierney. Jean Tierney is fabulous. I mean, yeah, she's gorgeous, but she is really good in this movie. Like the looks that she gives, the eye movements that she, she, she just when she looks up at a character, like you can feel it. I mean, she is a terrific actress. No, no doubt there. And she was perfectly cast for this role. But Clifton Webb really brings something to his role. I don't know. I just I've listened to his lines and I can imagine a different actor playing that in a completely different way. But it would just never work because Clifton Webb really made that his own. And Vincent Price, the way these guys kind of fed off of each other. And I don't know, you know, Vincent Price, maybe it's just doing something that's against his type or against what he would later become known for all those Roger Corman and uh, just, just all those horror movies, man. You know, it's yeah. that's what he ended up getting known for. And it's really nice seeing him play against type here. Um, Dana Andrews does uh, a pretty good Humphrey Bogart. I like his smile. I like his look and I, I, I do like him. He is no Humphrey Bogart though. I know. I, I I mean I miss Bogart, bro. I really do. Like when you you watch kind of Bogart, bro. Yeah, you you can watch Casablanca. You watch Key Largo. You know you watch Treasure Sierra Madre. I don't care. You know Bogart has he's got charisma and he he is a he 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 still has that macho-ness, but he has that smooth kind of suaveness to it. Yeah, I mean even even if you watch Casablanca, man, like yeah, he's smooth, he's collected, he's a badass, but at the same time, like he cries in that movie. It still holds up today, guys. That's the thing. You should watch this movie because it's still entertaining today. That's going to do it for us tonight. So you've been listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. If you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew, and crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E at gmail.com. You guys can get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter at moviecrewpod. Uh, if you guys could leave us a five-star or any star rating on iTunes and Stitcher, we would surely appreciate that. Helps people find out about the show. Paul, where can people follow you, sir? You can follow me at Paul or Williams J1 on Twitter. And as normal, I want to give a shout-out to Mr. Uh, C.J. Lee with Aquarius Weapon, who does our intro. Please go to his YouTube channel and SoundCloud and listen to his music and support him. Yeah, please do, because he like does to, really uh, great work for us every fucking... I, I mean, like, that, that show intro, everybody loves that. Everybody continuously tells me how great that is. Go listen to more of this guy's work. He's got more great material outside of our show open. Go listen to it. Yes, he does. And also, I don't really do this very much, but there's a band that I've kind of ran across uh, called Approaching Fiction. I'm really, really enjoying what they're doing. They have a, um, a new album out called Nove Terum. They, they really, they're really good. So, guys, if you get a chance, go to YouTube, go to Facebook, and check out Approaching Fiction. Or you can check them out on Instagram at approaching underscore fiction. They're a newer rock band who's trying to get started. They have a good mixture of thrash and, and hard rock. And what they're doing is, is just freaking phenomenal. So, yeah, go check those guys out and show them some love. And, guys, since we're talking about music, like we always in the show, I think we're just going to play the theme of Laura. 
because we didn't even talk about the music, but the music is amazing. It is so good in this movie. Paul, you're a musician. You, you're a fan of it? Yes, yes. I, I rather enjoyed the music in this movie a lot, dude. I thought it was phenomenal. Dude, I thought it just nailed the Laura character. Like this, you listen to the music and you're like, okay, yeah, I know who this character is. I, the, the music says everything. It's seductive. It's sweet. And at the same time, it's got a very uh, a mysterious slash slightly menacing tone to it. <laughs> it, it almost has a little bit of an, um, an ominous overtone to it. Yeah, yeah, I go with that. All right, so guys, we're going to be playing the Lara theme. This is from the masterful composer, David Rakeson. Enjoy! Enjoy! 